they consider us as Cancer Alley because so many people are dying from cancer and the air is polluted. You wouldn't know it to look at, but this is one of the most polluted places in America. I started to get sick. I thought that being sick, I was getting older. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't associate it with the, with, the, with the smell, the pollution. There are literally hundreds of thousands of enslaved people buried along this Mississippi River. On this episode of Redesign America, I am joined by Taylor Baldwin, who will help us unpack environmental racism and injustice and its disproportionate impact on black and brown communities. Now, environmental racism can kind of range, right? You can talk about it in terms of climate change, food deserts, or an area prone to cancer and known as Cancer Alley. And what I'm curious about is how did we get here? How are communities impacted and what can we do to address this? This is Mustafa Ali Smith, and you're listening to Redesign America. In the city of New Orleans, there is supposed to be a public hearing. Testifying before the community, the man was an actor, and he was not the only one. Paid actors were actually planted throughout the room. They were brought in to read a script supporting the construction of a proposed gas power plant. They were giving matching shirts and were told to hold signs in support of the project. Meanwhile, opponents of the plant say they were turned away at the door and told that the hearing was full. What happened was Intergy, the company behind the power plant, hired a firm to get grassroots support for the project. Instead, the firm engaged in what is known as astroturfing essentially paying actors to attend public hearings and support controversial projects. So after the hearings, the plant was approved, and now the surrounding community is fighting in the courts. This story is not unique. Communities like this one in New Orleans are 28% more likely to be exposed to pollution than the overall population. That number jumps to 54% for predominantly African-American communities. African-Americans making $60,000 a year are more likely to live in polluted areas than white residents who make less than $10,000. Communities of color are being put in harm's way and their voices are being drowned out by big polluter money and the very actors sent in their place. Uh, so my name is Taylor Baldwin. I am a graduate from the University of Tennessee in food science. And um, my whole professional career, I've been kind of involved with with food, with the food industry, food tech, uh, the South, the environment. All these are topics that really interest me. Taylor, I want to thank you uh, for starting us off with that example and then also uh, for joining the podcast today. Um I think I have some initial thoughts, right, about about this example with Intergy uh, paying paid actors, right, and all to get this uh, gas power plant approved, the plan approved, so it can be built. And I think my initial thoughts is, you know, are that I'm shocked. Uh, I'm shocked at the length the company would take to 
get this passed. And and then again, I'm not. Um, I think too often we see big companies like this taking advantage of communities, not caring enough about communities. And I'm also thinking about the impact of a decision like this, right? When you have a company coming in and saying that we want to build this gas power plant, the impact is that there becomes pollution in the area, more pollution in the area. Uh, It brings down property value of the area. And amongst other things as well. The other piece is that, you know, where does this typically happen, right? It happens in the communities that are predominantly black and brown. And so that's the problem that we're kind of facing today. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. Taylor, tell me your initial thoughts on environmental racism and injustice. So when we're talking about environmental racism, and it is racism, we need to remember that this is the institutional stripping of these communities and being able to decide what happens to the land around them being able to not decide what happens to the air that they breathe, being able to not rely on water and and their stream running clean and their their own ground around them. Um, Especially when you bring in low financial and lack of transportation, these issues just compound upon themselves. Even when you think back on at the time of Katrina, 60% of New Orleans was African-American when Hurricane Katrina came in and decimated the coast of Louisiana and Mississippi. Uh, Racial segregation left the citizens of these communities more likely to live in low-lying areas, which are, of course, more vulnerable to flooding. And then when you bring in the hurricane evacuation plans that the institutions came up with also relied heavily on people using their own cars. They didn't take into account communities that relied heavily on public transportation. So some residents had no choice but to to stay back or to, quote unquote, wait it out. And when you tie this all back into climate change, which, of course, is causing the sea levels to rise, this just foreshadows uh, even more insecure future for people in these types of communities. Yeah, and I I think that Katrina example is a great one to bring up because you look at the situation as a whole and how that disaster affected different communities and you know how black and brown communities were able to respond to this disaster was vastly different from how white communities did right you had black families who couldn't abide by the evacuation plan because they didn't have the transportation they didn't have the means to do so And so I'm wondering, Taylor, outside of this Katrina example, are these a result of policy choices? What, you know, what is going on here? And what other factors are playing into this? So factors such as housing, transportation, public health, pollution, uh, discriminatory decision making in the form of redlining, housing discrimination, poor infrastructure choices have caused African-Americans to live in environments that make them more vulnerable to a wide array of conditions. There's several institutional factors that all come to play when talking about environmental racism. 
You know, Taylor, I think, too, what you're naming right here are things that throughout history, black and brown folks have quite literally experienced the worst of these things. And again, these are things that can be traced back through our history. I think a lot back to slavery and the environmental conditions enslaved people had to endure with the choice to live in a cleaner, much healthier environment taken away from them, right? And so we think about these problems today, right? The lack of transportation, not having access to transportation so you can get to the nearest grocery store, right? That's an environmental injustice, right? When we think about public health, politics these are all things that you name and then the other one housing right you name redlining which was implemented to segregate black families these were color codes designed to indicate where it was safe to insure mortgages and anywhere where you know black folks lived or anywhere where they lived nearby were colored red to indicate to appraisers that these neighborhoods were too risky to insure mortgages. And so I want us to pause for a second because these things aren't done without consequences. You know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore names uh, this thing called organized abandonment. And when you have these things happening to communities, there is the abandonment of resources to these neighborhoods. There is lack of infrastructure. There is lack of care to these communities. The schools aren't funded. You have where a company like Entergy comes in wanting to build a power plant in these communities because there is not the interest of development in these neighborhoods. And so the outcome is that these communities continue to hurt. And it's it's sad to see and watch. And to me, that is environmental racism and injustice. So Taylor, we know that this is not a new issue and we've named some of the historical roots of environmental racism and injustice, but I'm curious at what moment in history do you think brought this issue more towards the front of the media's attention? It's very important to remember that this isn't just a new issue It was definitely the civil rights movement of the 1960s that sounded the alarm about public health dangers and their families and the communities. Um, Being from Memphis, you know, one particular event that stands out, of course, is the sanitation strike of 1968, where two Memphis garbage collectors were crushed to death by a malfunctioning truck. And so all the sanitation workers 
gathered together in states of strike because they were frustrated with the ongoing neglect and abuse by the city. Yeah, the sanitation strike. You know, the major thing here with the strike is that, you know, the working conditions that mainly black folks had to be in every single day and they were unsuitable for anyone, right? And, you know, even before Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, he was advocating for better conditions for the sanitation workers and also better wages. That's the question before you tonight. Yes. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job? Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to all of the hours that I usually spend in my office every day and every week as a pastor? The question is not if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen? I mean, think about what they were doing every day. You know, hauling trash, sometimes in the pouring rain, was a taxing and dirty job. Yet the city of Memphis expected sanitation workers to work long hours for meager wages and without overtime pay. And so these were environmental conditions, right, that they had to navigate, environmental injustice. You know, what what about other examples? Um, another another instance, uh, Warren County, North Carolina, the war transformer company was dumping toxic waste along the shoulders of a black North Carolina community in 1978, cancer causing um, substances. And then, of course, a more recent one, Flint, Michigan, which is textbook environmental racism, how this came out. And I'm sure you can you you could not have heard of Flint, Michigan and, and and everything that the residents have been through the past few years. And just a quick note uh, for our listeners about Flint, Michigan and what took place there in an effort to cut costs in March of 2014. Flint, Michigan officials switched the city's water supply to the Flint River and introduced lead poison water into homes, which became a massive public health crisis. You know, there's several impacts from this decision, but, you know, you had brown water flowing into the homes and you had black residents in Flint reporting, right, what was going on. And a lot of their concerns were going unanswered. And so you had bacteria being detected in the water supply. And then even today, there is such a distrust in the government where many residents still use bottled water to cook, to drink, and even to brush their teeth. And so this was a huge public health crisis and is still impacting the community today. Now, Taylor, what would some of the negative impacts on communities be from something like this happening? A study by the Center of Disease Control and Prevention determined that 11.2% of African-American children compared to 2.3% of white children are poisoned by lead. A 2004 report revealed that African-American children in Chicago were 12 times more likely to be poisoned respectively than their white counterparts. Data collected over a 20 year period found that more than half of people who live within 1.86 miles of toxic waste facilities in the United States are people of color. Another big way that environmental racism and injustice shows itself in urban communities is food deserts. 
This is kind of the, the popular one, one that's gaining a lot of attention these days. Food deserts are defined as parts of the country uh, without access, without quick access to fresh fruit, vegetables, and other healthful whole foods. These are usually in impoverished areas. Um, accessible and affordable food is limited or non-existent. Uh, corner stores and convenient type stores are the predominant um, means of supplying for families in this in these communities. Wow, yeah, food deserts are definitely something that I hear often. Um, what's the health outcomes here, right? How is someone's health impacted by food deserts? So it's a it's a huge impact on health with with limited options. As I was saying, people are just more likely to look to not as healthy alternatives. Food insecurity has a very high correlation with increased diabetes rates. In Chicago alone, the death rate from diabetes in a food desert is twice of that in an area with easy access to grocery stores. And you know, something like, you know, where's my nearest grocery store might not even be something that I think people register as kind of an environmental injustice. I want to ask too if this has been something that you've personally experienced. I definitely have when in my in my last home in uh, Toledo, Toledo is in northern Ohio, it's about 45 minutes south of Detroit. And downtown Toledo is still very up and coming. And living downtown, I, I, the nearest the nearest grocery store where I could go and get fresh fruits and veggies was probably about 15, 20 minute drive. And so luckily I'm privileged enough to have that transportation. But as you can imagine, you know, that's a privilege to, to have my own car and to be able to have time to go and dedicate this time to going and driving to the grocery store. But what if I didn't have a car and I had to take public transportation out to this Kroger that's 15 minutes away and get groceries and put those groceries on the bus and bust those back into where I live. Now I'm not as likely to go to that Kroger and I'm more likely to hit the corner store or to uh, go a couple blocks down to McDonald's. And so that's kind of why environmental racism and health are so intertwined. Yeah. Taylor, what have you been doing, right, to combat this in your community? Have you been, you know, getting involved with any organizations working to combat this? You know, what efforts have been made? Um, I'm involved with a with a group called the Indie Food Council, which is based in Indianapolis, where I currently live. And we've and we've been able to work with Lyft to give communities in these food desert areas free lifts back and forth to the grocery stores. And that's important too, right? When we talked about transportation earlier, this is a big factor, right? For folks uh, being able to get fresh produce and, uh, you know, accessibility to a grocery store. Um, so I love that you're doing that work. Taylor, as we close out, I'm thinking about the role that all of us play in combating environmental racism and injustice. And I think a lot of people uh, consider, you know, the government's role. So I'd love to know here what exactly that looks like for you. They definitely play a huge role in combating. When we talk about environmental injustice and environmental racism, these institutions, politicians, the administrations, 
all of them have the responsibility to help out our communities with these issues. So it's definitely going to take coordination between multiple different partners and communities coming out and coming out together to take the steps in the right direction. Taylor, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with me on this podcast about environmental racism and injustice. And I think during the duration of this podcast, we've kind of talked about it in different lights, right? Um, the historical piece from slavery, uh, pollution, uh, you know, building these factories in communities, the historical abandonment in these communities of resources, lack of transportation, infrastructure. And we've also talked about uh, climate change and, you know, lack of grocery stores in these communities, right? Lead poisoning and other types of uh, impacts on the on communities, such as natural disasters, right? It's all-encompassing, and I, I kind of sound like a broken record at this point, but all of these different pieces of this problem, the people who are suffering the most are black and brown folks, and I cannot say that enough. And if there's one thing that I want to leave with you is that these different parts of the environment, right? The water we drink, the waste around us, uh, and how it's managed. This is all designed by people and people can be racist. I think the hard part for some folks to understand is the environmental racism piece but people are designing these systems and the reality today is that you have more than half of all people who live close to hazardous waste being people of color and black children who are twice as likely to suffer from lead poisoning than white children and all of this to me again is environmental racism and injustice and so to confront this we really have to reckon with how history has brought us to this moment i continuously say that and if we neglect this history if we neglect where communities are they'll continue to suffer